December 6, 1846, San Pascal, California, approximately 30 miles north-northeast of San Diego. Kit Carson's guiding a contingent of American dragoons in an attack on a California camp. When we were within 100 yards of their camp, my horse fell through me and my rifle was broken into two pieces. I came very near being trodden to death. I, being in advance, the whole command had to pass over me. I finally saved myself by crawling from under them. I then ran on about 100 yards to where the fight had commenced. A dragoon had been killed. I took his gun and cartridge box and joined in the melee. San Pascal was probably the sharpest fight in the American conquest of California. And for all that it had world historical importance, that conquest was a bit of a comic opera. San Pascal was possibly the closest Kit Carson ever came to being killed outright in a fight. And uh, ironically enough, if he'd have had his way, he wouldn't have been there at all. When Fremont returned to California in June of 1846, after the, uh, the bloody encounter with the Klamaths in Oregon, he plunged his command right into the American takeover of California, I believe on orders directly from President James K. Polk, relayed by Lieutenant Archibald Gillespie. At the time, Fremont did not know yet that the, uh, the U.S. and Mexico had been at war since, uh, since May, but uh, he, had, he had interpreted his mission as seizing the state. So he, he joined the Bear Flag Revolt, which was uh, kicked off in June with settlers declaring California an independent nation, an independent republic. It wasn't much of a revolution, and... It was quickly subsumed into the into the U.S.-Mexico War, but Fremont's involvement embroiled Kit Carson in what Tom Dunlay calls one of the darkest episodes of his career. Moving south, Fremont's men captured three California couriers, Francisco and Ramon de Haro, and their uncle Juan de los Reyes Barriesa, and they executed them. There are a variety of accounts of this episode. The closest one that we have to Carson's own recollection of this was an account that he gave to a friend named W.M. Boggs in 1853, and Boggs wrote it down many, many years after Carson's death. And according to Carson, when they captured the Californios, he asked Fremont what to do with them, and Fremont replied, Mr. Carson, I have no use for prisoners. Do your duty. And Carson and his companions talked it over a little bit and then, uh, then shot the prisoners. Boggs asked Carson why he did it when the prisoners were in his power, and Carson explained that they'd been enraged by the previous killing of a couple of Americans in which Californios had tied them to trees and attached lariats to them and literally pulled them apart. So it seems to have been another instance of, of Carson's anger getting the best of him. Now, the shooting of unarmed prisoners, whether under orders or not, is pretty clearly a war crime uh, by any, any modern definition, certainly. It was also a very common feature of frontier partisan warfare, 
and uh, and remains so to this day. People who uh, who follow frontier partisans will uh, probably recognize shades of the Breaker Morant episode in the Boer War in South Africa in at the turn of the 20th century, where Morant and his Bushveld Carboneers killed Boer prisoners, again in retaliation for the the killing and mutilation of their commanding officer. And uh, just recently, we've had episodes in the global war on terror and the, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, the Australian government has, has recently acted against Australian special forces soldiers who were accused of battlefield killings. It's just, a, it seems to be a a sort of universal phenomenon, whether you, you can justify it or not is another question, but uh, it's it's common enough to retaliate for atrocious and vicious attacks on your side with uh, essentially cold-blooded murder of, of prisoners. Carson never wrote about it in his memoir, his dictated memoir, and uh, that conversation with his friend, Boggs at a um, which Boggs recounted at a much later date is is really his only mention of of the incident. Uh, I think we can take that as a pretty clear sign that he was not proud of it, and probably also that he was attempting to protect Fremont's reputation. So Fremont moved south, and California fell pretty rapidly to. Uh, to his forces and the forces of Admiral Stockton, who was the ranking U.S. naval commander in the region. Again, it was kind of a, a bit of a, a comic opera, especially at first. Fremont wound up in, in Monterey, which was then the, the capital of California, and he detailed Carson and some of his other ex-mountain men to sail from Monterey to San Diego, and uh, to secure that area. And this was Carson's only sea voyage, and he hated it. All of the, uh, the mountain men were brutally seasick on the, the voyage, which I think took about four days. And Carson was recalled to have said, I'd rather ride a grizzly than on this boat. So once, uh, once he arrived in San Diego, Carson was detailed by Fremont and Stockton to take dispatches across the country to Washington, D.C. And so he set out again on that old Ewing Young route out across the, the desert. And when he hit uh, what is now about Socorro, New Mexico, he ran into General Stephen Watts Kearney and his dragoons who were headed west to California. And Kearney ordered Carson to hand over the dispatches to another rider and turn around and guide Kearney's force back to California. And Carson was adamantly opposed to this, probably for a couple of reasons. The, uh, the dispatch riding on behalf of his, his captain was a great honor. And, uh, Carson was so duty-oriented that he seems to have, have felt that even under orders, failing to do so was a betrayal of his captain's trust. 
And certainly another part of it was that he was uh, going to have the opportunity to visit Josefa and his family uh, on the route back. And if Carney turned him back, who knows when he would he'd get to see his family again. Um, one of his companions, Lucien Maxwell, had to talk him out of deserting in the middle of the night and continuing his ride to the east, uh, which is pretty fortunate because uh, he he would have been he would have been treated as a deserter had he done that. So Carson turned around and headed back across the desert back to California, where it turned out that things were in quite a mess. The uh, mission accomplished message that Fremont and Stockton had sent Carson back east with was uh, turned out a little bit premature, as it sometimes does. And there had been an insurrection that had pushed the Yankees out of Los Angeles and Santa Barbara and basically everything between Monterey and San Diego. So that's how Kit Carson came to be tangling with California Lancers under the command of Andres Pico at the Battle of San Pascal. And uh, that was, as I said, probably the sharpest fight in the entire American conquest of California. Uh, Kearney's dragoons were pretty weary and their horses were in bad shape. They attacked the Californios in misty, wet conditions that uh, caused their their carbines to malfunction. Black powder does not deal well with moisture, so uh, so they had a lot of problems with misfires, which gave the advantage to the Californios who were experts with these lances. And it was a nasty little fight. Um, as described at the top, Carson fell early on, and his horse fell early on, and, and he ended up... Uh, kind of having to crawl off to the rocks and, and snipe at the, the Mexican California Lancers with a, with a carbine that he managed to, to get to function. But uh, the rest of the Dragoons got into a, a pretty severe melee where they were trying to fight these long lances off with, with sabers, and it didn't go too well. They, uh, they held the field, which allowed them to claim the victory, but they were pretty badly mauled. There were 17 dead and 18 wounded, and uh, the command was under threat of annihilation. They were stuck uh, pretty far from San Diego and unable to, to move swiftly because of the wounded. So uh, the Californias were, were shadowing them where they camped on a, on a hill. And uh, had they moved out, they could have been caught out in the open and, and cut up. So uh, Kearney detailed Carson and a lieutenant named Edward Beale and uh, an Indian, a young Indian boy named Chamukta, and they exfiled through the California lines and took different routes to get to San Diego to ask Admiral Stockton to send out reinforcements. Um, which he probably already, it appears that he already was doing that. So the, the mission was probably not necessary. But uh, nevertheless, it was a, a heroic and, and very dangerous endeavor. Um, they all went through different routes. Carson took the, the longest way around um, and 
actually arrived in San Diego last, but he was the only one that was not in, in dire condition. They'd taken off their their shoes in order to, to creep through the, the California lines and had lost them. And so they were making about 28 miles through prickly pear and, and rocks and, and conditions were pretty nasty. Lieutenant Beale was, was so stove up, it took him, uh, as Carson said, two years to, to fully recover from the ordeal. But at any rate, uh, they did make it back to San Diego, stocked and sent out reinforcements that uh, linked up with Kearney's command, and they were able to make it safely back to San Diego. And that was kind of the last hurrah of the California insurrection. There was a, another fight uh, near San Gabriel where um, the Americans were able to prevail and, and take control of Los Angeles, and they basically quelled the the California insurrection and held California for the United States of America. So by October of 1847, Carson was was back in Monterey. And as uh, Tom Dunlay describes in his book, Kit Carson and the Indians, one of the first people to greet him was a young lieutenant who was somewhat taken aback by how this American hero looked. Quote, his fame was then at its height from the publication of Fremont's books, and I was very anxious to see a man who had achieved such feats of daring among the wild animals of the Rocky Mountains and still wilder Indians of the Plains. I cannot express my surprise at beholding such a small, stoop-shouldered man with reddish hair, freckled face, soft blue eyes, and nothing to indicate extraordinary courage or daring. He spoke but little and answered questions in monosyllables. That young officer was William Tecumseh Sherman, who would go on to become one of the most preeminent officers in the Union Army in the Civil War and would uh, eventually become the commander of the U.S. Army in the, in the post-war era. So Carson was, was done with, uh, with soldiering for the moment, and uh, he was again tasked with carrying dispatches to Washington, D.C., which he did, and uh, made that cross-country trip, and then was able to return to civilian life and his family life with Osefa. And he established a ranch with Lucian Maxwell at a place called Riado in, uh, in southeast New Mexico. And uh, he tried to make a go of it as, as a rancher and actually did, did pretty well for a few years. He and Maxwell drove sheep to the California gold fields. The California gold rush was underway. Gold had been discovered at Sutter's Fort, and, uh, and the 49ers were, were heading across the country and around Cape Horn to California and radically changing that land that uh, Carson had just had a hand in, in taking from Mexico. So he and, uh, and Maxwell put together a herd of sheep to, to drive to the gold fields. And, and it was a, a quite a successful endeavor. And he ended up with a little bit of, uh, of coin in his pocket. And he was able to, uh, to spend time with his, his family for the first time in, in a decade, essentially. So this was really the most domestic period of Kit Carson's life. But uh, it was hardly inactive. During the 1850s, there was 
a lot of trouble along the Santa Fe Trail. And uh, the Jicarilla Apache Indians, who were uh, an eastern New Mexico band, they were linguistically attached to the Apache, but culturally they they weren't really like the, the Apaches that we think of when we think of Cochise and Geronimo. These were... Uh, they more closely resembled the the Plains Indians of uh, Kiowa, Comanche, that sort of lifestyle. They uh, they hunted and gathered in the mountains, and then would go out onto the plains to to hunt the buffalo. And they also were in this period raiding immigrants along the Santa Fe Trail, and. One of those raids created an incident that is uh, one of the most poignant in Carson's career. In October of 1849, the Hikaria hit a small immigrant wagon train on the Santa Fe Trail, killed several men, and captured a woman named Ann White, her very young daughter, and a black nursemaid. And uh, a party of American dragoons and local volunteers, including several former mountain men, set out on the trail. One of those mountain men was a, a famous fellow named uh, Uncle Dick Wooten, and uh, another was was Kit Carson. And the Hikaria broke into small groups that would scatter across the landscape and then reunite in pre-designated rendezvous areas and campsites. So it was very challenging to, to figure out who had Ann White and where they were headed. Carson referred to it as the most difficult trail that I ever followed. But eventually they did find the camp, and Carson was far in advance of the party of American Dragoons, and he could see that the, that the Apaches knew that the troops were there and they were breaking camp. And so he galloped forward and called back to the, the soldiers and, and other volunteers to follow him. And uh, Dick Wooten and the others rushed forward to charge the camp, and, and the Dragoon commander uh, a guy named uh, Greer ordered the men to to halt, and uh, Wooten recalled that Greer's action was quote one of the strangest ideas that ever entered the head of a commanding officer who was about to engage an Indian or any other enemy. And uh, Carson was was pissed, and gone was the the mild mannered, soft spoken man that uh, that Sherman had described, he rode back and was cursing Greer and demanding that they charge immediately. But Greer, um, acting under the advice of another scout, apparently thought that they should parley with the Hikaria. And, uh, and so by this time, the, uh, the Hikaria were, were breaking camp and scattering, and, and a few warriors had rode out to screen their their families' retreats. Greer actually was shot. Um, lucky, luckily for him, it was at long range, and the ball was was spent and just hit a pair of of leather gauntlets that were folded up in and tucked into his the breast of his 
his shirt. And uh, so he took a, a shot to the chest, but, uh, but was not severely injured. But uh, that sort of uh, changed his mind about the parlay, and he ordered a charge, but it was too late. So as uh, they charged in, the, the Indians scattered, and, uh, and Ann White apparently had tried to run toward her rescuers and was, was shot from behind with an arrow. And Carson recalled that he found her body, quote, perfectly warm, had not been killed more than five minutes, shot through the heart with an arrow. And Carson was, was very, very upset by this and angered by it and said, I am certain that if the Indians had been charged immediately on our arrival, she would have been saved. So Ann White was dead. The baby and the the black nursemaid would never be heard of again. And uh, there was kind of an ironic and poignant coda to the episode. Um, the dragoons and the volunteers buried Ann White and then built a fire over her grave so that it wouldn't be, be found and, and desecrated. The volunteers looked through the belongings that Ann White had left in the camp. And Carson recalled that in camp was found a book, the first of the kind I had ever seen, in which I was made a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. And I have often thought that as Mrs. White would read the same, and knowing that I lived near, she would pray for my appearance, and that she would be saved. I did come, but had not the power to convince those that were in command over me to pursue my plan for her rescue. Kit told his companions to throw the book on the fire and burn the damn thing. So during those last few years of the 1840s and into the early 1850s, Carson was a, a rancher and did some freelance work as a, as a courier and a scout. He even did some trapping, but uh, he was operating in the private sector. And in 1853, he was appointed to be the Indian agent to the Mawasha Utes in uh, northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. There's no evidence that he sought that position, and it may have sought him out, but uh, it's also reasonable to believe that that he was uh, looking for a, a public service job for the financial stability that it offered. And in this case, he would be able to essentially work from home. There wasn't an Indian agency at that time. He would have been, uh, he would operate out of his, his home in Taos, New Mexico. So he would still be able to spend time with his family while uh, pulling down a government paycheck. And this is a less exciting period of his life, but it's it's very important because it reflects a his shifting attitude towards the Indians that he dealt with. Um, as as Dunlay puts it, he'd always dealt with with the native peoples that he encountered on a case by case basis, friendly if they were friendly, hostile if they were hostile. Uh, but it was on an on an individual and circumstantial basis. And now he was responsible for actually managing the quote-unquote Indian problem. 
and it really was a problem. We tend to think of the frontier as an advancing line of, of civilization moving across the, the plains, but that's, that's not what had happened. The, uh, the immigration to Oregon and then the California gold rush had sort of leapfrogged the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains and put American civilization on both sides of the native peoples of the plains and the mountains. And then the Hispano-American civilization of the Southwest was, was on the South side. So those native peoples were essentially surrounded by American civilization that was eventually going to squeeze in on them. And Carson, as an Indian agent, recognized that, that there were very significant problems attendant with the interactions of that civilization and, and the native peoples. It was no longer a situation where, like the mountain men, they could come to a, an accord and where the, the whites had a light footprint on the landscape. The American settlers that, uh, that were moving into the area, they, they were coming to stay and they were coming to exploit the resources of, of the region. And uh, when they came into conflict with the Indians, the Indians got the, got the short end of the stick. And Carson very quickly came to realize that almost all of the conflicts that were occurring from the 1850s into the 1860s were really instigated by the whites. And he came to be a proponent of reservations for the native peoples, not as a, a concentration camp or a way to get rid of them, but as a way to protect the native peoples from the encroachment of, of the whites uh, until such time as they were better able to, to cope with those intrusions. He believed that they needed to be separated because if, if they weren't and conflicts occurred, the Indians were going to end up being either completely pushed aside or, or actually exterminated. So he worked in that direction and, uh, and attempted to serve his charges as best that he could under trying circumstances because U.S. government policy, shockingly enough, was inconsistent and uh, they provided a, a lot of unfunded mandates. The, uh, they were short on the annuities that were required to keep the Indians' body and soul together when they were unable to hunt or their, their hunting territory was, was restricted. And, uh, and yet those Indians were to be punished if they were reduced to such a starving condition that they had to steal. So it was a thankless job, tough job. And, uh, as he put it, he, he didn't always know if, uh, if he'd done right, but he always did his best. And I think it's important to understand that period of, of Carson's life and work because it really cuts against the, the grain of this notion that, that he was an agent of, of genocidal American conquest. He really did do his very best to 
protect the Indians, particularly the Utes that were under his under his charge, and do right by them. And uh, that circumstance would be greatly affected, and the American conquest of the region would be greatly accelerated by the coming of the American Civil War. The Civil War would call Kit Carson back to duty again as a soldier. He would become a lieutenant colonel and then a full colonel of volunteers. Now, Carson was a Missourian by birth and uh, very much out of that southern backcountry culture, but he doesn't seem to have ever had any hesitation or doubt as to whom he would serve in the Civil War. Uh, Carson was a Union man, and he had been a soldier of the United States and would continue to be so. As far as I'm able to discern, he never really expressed any attitude regarding the institution of of slavery in in the southern states. There was a whole other form of slavery that existed in in New Mexico, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But he didn't seem to have any kind of particular ideological axe to grind in in the Civil War. He simply went where he felt that his his duty commanded him to go. And uh, in the early years of the Civil War, it had a, a major impact in in New Mexico because there was an invasion of the territory by Confederate Texans. And uh, Carson was part of the effort to stop that invasion. He uh, was a colonel of volunteers and mustered troops, largely Hispano, to help counter that threat. And uh, once again, that forced him to abandon his his family life. There's a a nice little vignette from a, a captain named Rafael Chacon who describes Carson's relationship with his his children and his wife and and it gives a, a real glimpse to into the kind of of man that he was quote he was very loving toward his family i remember that he used to lie down on an indian blanket in front of his quarters with his pockets full of candy and lumps of sugar his children would jump on him and take the candy and sugar from his pockets and eat it this made him very happy and he derived great pleasure from these episodes his wife was called by him by the pet name Chapita, and he was most kind to her. Carson would do his duty well as a Civil War commander, brief uh, as that uh, episode was in his life. He handled his contingent of troops very skillfully at the Battle of Valverde, which should have been a Union victory, but uh, but. That was squandered by hesitancy upon the the part of the the commanding general. Um, but Carson acquitted himself very well, and uh, he was not present at the the decisive battle at Glorieta Pass, where the Union troops actually did defeat the Confederate uh, forces, the Confederate Texans, and. Uh, turned them back toward Texas and and relieved the threat of invasion from New Mexico. So that was in 1863 that the Confederate threat had evaporated and uh, 
there was no longer any any particular concern about that. So the U.S. Army in the territory turned its attention to addressing the quote-unquote Indian problem. And the task of civilizing the New Mexico Territory was handled, handed to General James Henry Carleton. General Carleton was a man of considerable vision and ambition, all bent toward what he considered to be a mission of civilization. It had to have been hard on him to be stuck in a backwater in the far west when his fellow officers were making names for themselves in in gigantic battles in the Civil War. But uh, he determined to make the best of his position in charge of the Department of New Mexico. And uh, he was extremely hard-headed once he had conceived of a mission and a plan. And, and he was one of those kinds of people that was kind of impervious to information or advice that contradicted his, his settled beliefs. If you look at pictures of him, he's always got this very fierce expression on his face. And uh, you could just tell that he was a man who was very driven and, uh, and wouldn't brook any resistance to his plans. And his plan involved taming the nomadic raiders that operated in his territory and concentrating them at uh, Bosque Redondo on a bend of the Pecos River in far eastern New Mexico, where he would turn them into sedentary farmers. I think that it's uh, it's important to remember again that that you know we look back on the reservation system and think that that it was mostly a, a disaster and uh, and very deleterious to the native peoples, which in in many many cases it has been, but at the time when people were advocating for the reservation system it, it wasn't it wasn't really looked upon as as a form of punishment it was looked upon again as we mentioned earlier a way of of protecting the native peoples from eventual extermination with the idea that that reservations would give them time to adapt to american civilization in a lot of ways that was naive and and foolish and and in many respects it, it was a kind of, of cultural genocide but that was not what was intended by it although it has to be said that carlton's civilizing mission was uh was going to lead to a real tragedy carlton turned to carson to operate his his roundups of the the raiding peoples the Hikaria, the mescalero apache and most famously the navajo and uh, carson transferred all of the the sense of loyalty and duty that he had shown towards john charles fremont to general carlton and uh, he would he would serve him very faithfully um it has to be noted that part of Carlton, uh, Carlton's plans involved 
getting the Navajo out of their traditional territory because Carlton believed without any particular evidence to back it up that that the Navajo homeland in northeastern Arizona and uh, northwestern New Mexico was mineral rich and that uh, he would he would make his name for himself by opening this territory to American exploitation. So there was that element in in his planning as well as as what he considered the humanitarian effort of of removing the uh, the Navajo to the Bosque Redondo Reservation. This Navajo removal would be the great stain on the reputation of, of Kit Carson, although he did not conceive of the policy. That was, that was Carlton's. And it's popularly depicted or has been since, since revisionist history gained some traction in the uh, 1950s, 60s, 70s as uh, the ethnic cleansing of a pastoral people and, and removing them to a, a desolate reservation. And that's a little misleading. The Navajo in the 1860s were, they were in part a pastoral people. That's definitely true. But they had a long tradition of raiding and slave taking. And there had been a cycle of violence virtually 300 years old uh, between the, the Hispano population of New Mexico territory and the Navajo, dating back to, to the Spanish days. And both sides were, were taking children as, as slaves and raiding livestock. And the Navajo were still active raiders in 1863 when Carlton conceived this campaign to, to remove them. And right or wrong, it's, it's impossible to see how a American territorial government would have tolerated this ongoing cycle of, of raid and, and retribution. So that's the context that, that the Navajo campaign has to be understood in. And, uh, it's also important to understand that, that there was no unified Navajo government with which the Americans could have negotiated. The wealthier Navajo um, were pretty content to be pastoralists, they, and they weren't looking for trouble. They had an investment in, in a peaceful status quo, but they had no means of exerting authority over young, more militant and more aggressive warriors who wanted to continue to raid. And so it wasn't really possible to induce the, the Navajo to clamp down on their own people and put an end to the raiding. So Carlton's belief that the only solution was to break the power of the Navajo and to remove them from their homeland was not a completely unreasonable point of view looked at from the point of view of a 19th century American military commander responsible for the the government of a large 
and expansive territory. All that said, there's no way of looking at the, the Navajo campaign as other than a nasty and, and dirty piece of business. And, uh, and Carson saw it that way. It was a, a dirty job that, that he had to get done, and he set about it with grim determination. Hampton Sides has written a very popular history titled Blood and Thunder about the uh, about Kit Carson and the Navajo campaign, and uh, he described the campaign thus. There was nothing glorious about Carson's campaign. No great engagement, no fields of honor, no decisive victories. With the American invasion, the Navajos did what they had always done. They scattered, vanished, dropped into their thousand pockets and holes and abided in silence. And so, with no one to fight, Carson's campaign became, of necessity, a war of grinding attrition. I think it's important also to note some additional context with with that. Wars of attrition and destroying the supply base of an enemy was a, a significant part of the American Civil War. By 1864-1865, the Union forces had decided to break the will of the, of the Confederacy to resist, and Grant, U.S. Grant, the uh, general in charge of the Union armies, had dispatched Phil Sheridan into the Shenandoah Valley to burn and destroy that breadbasket of the Northern Confederacy. And William Tecumseh Sherman would become famous for marching from Atlanta, Georgia, to the sea, destroying everything in his path. And it was, uh, there were very few engagements in those campaigns either. It was really a, a campaign of destruction and attrition designed to break the will of, of the enemy and their, and their capacity to resist. So this was becoming a, a normal or normalized part of the American way of war uh, against any kind of enemy, not just against the native peoples. Through the summer and fall of 1863, Carson led a 1,000-man strong column and uh, employed Ute scouts, and they destroyed crops and spoiled water sources, slaughtered livestock, basically starving the Navajos in, into submission. And uh, he made it very clear to them that, that he was not attempting to exterminate them. He sent word out that if they were to come in and, sur and surrender, that they'd be well treated. And um, when subordinate commanders actually abused Navajo who did come in, Carson had one of those rare but uh, intense moments of, of, of rage and losing his temper. It was not just the wrong thing to do. It was strategically stupid. He wanted the Navajo to, to weigh the costs of, of staying out in their territory versus coming into American posts. And he, he wanted that decision to weigh heavily towards coming in. He really was not trying to to exterminate the Navajo people. 
But uh, in order to truly break the resistance of the Navajo, soldiers had to penetrate the, their great stronghold in the Canyon de Chez. A dear friend of mine, Jack McGowan, has had a lifelong fascination with the Canyon de Chez, and last year was able to go there and tour the the canyon complex with a Navajo guide, and he described what really amounts to a, a mystical experience. It's it's an extraordinary place, very very beautiful, um, and a remote and highly defensible fortress for for the Navajo for the last holdouts. Carson seemed to really dread trying to penetrate the Canyon de Chez. And uh, part of that would appear to be that, that he was, at this point, a very, very sick man. A robust mountain man of, of decades past was was beginning to fade seriously. He had a, uh, a ticking time bomb in his chest. He had a, a pulmonary aneurysm that would eventually kill him. And uh, circulatory problems with his legs. Uh, this great horseman who uh, Fremont had de- described coursing across the plains uh, mostly rode in a uh, army ambulance or a carriage now because he, he really couldn't ride comfortably anymore. Uh, it's not certain exactly what caused his health problems. He had had a, a bad wreck during the 1850s on an elk hunting trip. Uh, his horse fell on a scree slope and rolled over him. That certainly didn't do him any good, but the people that I've talked to about this say that that would not have caused a, a pulmonary aneurysm. Um, could have been a lifestyle matter. I mean, he the the way of life that he had lived since he was 16 years old was pretty hard on the body and uh, diet wasn't always the best could have been congenital Um, but at any rate he was he was wearing down very badly and uh, the rigors of this grinding and and unpleasant and inglorious campaign against the Navajo were were taking their toll he was extremely tired and just wanted to get it done and his most fervent desire was to return home to, to Josefa in Taos. And he asked Carlton numerous times to uh, allow him to relinquish the command or, or to take a, a, a long leave of absence, but Carlton just wouldn't have it. Um, he, he basically told Carson that he would get a break after he had finished rounding up the Navajo. So Carson was in a bad way, and so were the Navajo. Their Hogans were burned, their crops and livestock were destroyed, and, and they were feeling the pinch of starvation and, and a very cold winter. You know, as deserts are, it was uh, brutally cold, especially at night during the winter, and they had little shelter. Um, as I mentioned, you know, some, some surrendered and Carson was infuriated when some sadistic dolt of a post commander abused them because, uh, 
he didn't want them to to perceive that that they were better off fighting to the death. He wanted them to come in, and abuse just stiffened their resistance. So at this point in 1864, a substantial number of the holdouts had retreated into the depths of the, the Canyon de Chez complex. And uh, there was uh, is a complex of, of three canyons, and very few white men had ever been in there. And, and um, all of Kit Carson's mountain man instincts tingled at the idea of, of going into the, the canyon because it was a, a perfect trap. And he was afraid that his command might be ambushed in, in this labyrinth and rubbed out. So he scouted along the rim and then sent columns in from each end of the canyon to, uh, to probe for those, those last holdouts. Ironically, as Hampton Sides notes, even though his name would be forever associated with it, Carson would never set foot in Canyon de Chez. So one of the columns that entered the canyon complex from the east mistakenly moved through Canyon del Muerto. Uh, they rounded up some Navajo and skirmished with some others, and they moved past a an eminence in the in the middle of the canyon that was called Fortress Rock, and they were unaware that 300 Navajos had climbed to the top of this sandstone pillar, and they had a supply of food and and water from snowmelt that they'd captured in in cisterns. So this was a, a prepared stronghold for them. They missed those Navajo at that time, but later Carson would send a force into the camp canyon to camp along a creek that lay at the foot of the rock. And uh, in February of 1864, the Navajo were running out of water. They were perishing from thirst because the cisterns had run dry. And they pulled off an epic effort that... Uh, that my friend Jack McGowan's Navajo Guide recounted to them and Hampton Sides describes in Blood and Thunder. They formed a human chain along the precarious toehold path all the way down to Tzahili Creek where several American guards lay sleeping. A group of warriors crept out to a ledge 20 feet over the stream and dangled gourds from yucca ropes, dipping the containers into the cold running water. Working through the night, they filled gourd after gourd, right next to the sleeping Americans, and steadily passed the vessels from hand to hand back up the sheer rock face to the summit. By dawn, they had replenished their stores. So those 300 Navajo holdouts withstood the siege, and eventually they slipped away, and they were never rounded up in Carson's sweep. But... Overall, despite those heroics, the campaign had the effect that Carson and Carlton sought. The Navajo began to surrender. And those that came in were relieved to discover that Carson was not intending to exterminate them. And uh, the army colonel reassured the, the cold and starving surrendering Navajo the government wants to promote your welfare. The point is not to destroy you, but to save you if you want to be saved. 
he probably believed that. I believe that he did believe that. But uh, his kindness toward the surrender were, was also mixed with that kind of grim determination to, to finish the job. And uh, the first surrenders seemed to give him hope that he could swiftly round up the campaign, which he was sick of and wanted to get home. And uh, as he prepared to return to Fort Canby, um, the hard man in him, him came out and in an effort to make sure that the, the job would stay finished, he ordered an action that cut to the heart of the, the free Navajo. And uh, it's an act that, that Sides calls a parting gesture of pure aggression. Carson ordered his captains to chop down every peach tree in Canyon de Chez. The soldiers actually couldn't carry out the, the order in the depths of winter because the, the wood was hard and, and it was cold, but uh, they would return later on in the summer and, and sawed down and burned thousands of these peach trees, which were you know, the pride of, of the Navajo who, who lived in Canyon de Chez. It was, it was truly an ugly act, and uh, to this day, it is one of the reasons that Carson's name is accursed amongst the, the Navajo, and that's completely understandable. The, the worst was yet to come for them. Um, the trickle of surrender turned into a, a flood, and the army marched them 400 miles dressed in rags and, and hungry um, to the east to Bosque Redondo on the Pecos and uh, many died. It's not known how many died on what became infamous as the Long Walk. It's probably second only to the Trail of Tears in um, the imagination of native peoples as uh, as evidence of an effort at, at ethnic cleansing. Um, most of those who died died from disease, exhaustion, and getting caught in in a spring blizzard. But uh, they also were preyed upon by Ute raiders. The Ute and the Navajo were traditional enemies, and the Utes had no no compunction at all about raiding them. And, uh, and there were incidents of, of rape and murder by escorting soldiers. It was, it was a nasty piece of business and it's understandable that, that, uh, many look upon it as a, as a real stain on, on Carson's reputation. Um, although again, he didn't enact the policy and, um, he didn't, really conduct the the long march um but nevertheless he he was in charge of the campaign and and so at least a portion of the responsibility for its effects has to be on his ledger uh bosque redondo turned out to be a, a disaster it was it was really kind of hellish the water was bad the land wasn't capable of supporting the numbers that uh that carlton had had wanted to house there. Um, people had told him this, but again, he was really hardheaded and, and he believed that because he could conceive it, that he could push it through, through sheer determination alone. And, uh, 
On top of that, the Comanche and the Kiowa from the plains to the east saw these hapless Navajo as, as easy pickings and, and raided them at every turn. And they had no, no means of self-defense, and the army, there just wasn't a large enough contingent of, of soldiers there to protect them. So the Navajo would eke out a, an absolutely miserable existence there for, for four years, and uh, with his experiment in, in civilizing them obviously failing, uh, Carleton was eventually fired. And in 1868, General William Tecumseh Sherman visited the area, and he, he recognized that the U.S. Army was going to be presiding over the miserable death and destruction of these people for whom they had responsibility. And although Sherman is not noted for soft sentiments towards Indians or anybody else, he did take pity on their situation. And in 1868, he negotiated with the Navajo chief Barbancito, and the Navajo were allowed to return back to their homeland and to their, to their sacred ground where, where the Navajo uh, live to this day. And uh, their military power was broken, and they were no longer a, a threat to anybody, but um, they were able to, to return to their home. This was long after Carson had, uh, had ceased to have involvement in, in the situation, and in, in fact, it occurred in the year that, that Carson died. So reeling back to 1864, um, after the Navajo roundup, Carlton had one more major military assignment for, for Carson, and that was to go after the Kiowa and Comanche who had been raiding Bosque Redondo and also raising all kinds of hell on the wagon routes across the plains. The Comanche were famously the great military power of the South Plains. They raided thousands of miles into Mexico and uh, were truly in a, a, a native imperial power. The Kiowa were a, a smaller group that were aligned and allied with them. And uh, Carson led a column of 400 volunteers, combat seasoned, campaign seasoned, volunteers, including Ute and Hikaria Apache scouts, uh, east into the Great Plains of uh, what would become the, the, the Texas Panhandle to punish the Kiowa and Comanche. Carson's men hit a Kiowa village and, and drove the Kiowa off, but... Uh, but the Comanche and Kiowa rallied in, in very large numbers, uh, probably around 1,500, possibly as many 2,000 warriors, and uh, turned at bay to, to fight against Carson's column. So Carson ordered his men to take up a, a strong defensive position in the ruins of an old trading post out there on the prairie, a uh, place called, prosaically enough, Adobe Walls. 
and that gave the subsequent battle its name, the first battle of adobe walls. There would be a a second incident there with uh, some buffalo hunters about 10 years later where they, they stood off a, a large party of Comanche. But in this 1864 conflict, it was a pretty big battle for uh, for frontier partisan warfare, and uh, Carson had two significant advantages that uh, that really saved his command. One was his Ute and Hikaria scouts acted as a as a cavalry screen and kept uh, the Comanche and the Kiowa off balance a little bit and and kept them at a distance. And Carson also had a couple of mountain howitzers, the same gun that uh, that Fremont had toted along with him during his second expedition. And uh, Carson's men were able to deploy those howitzers to prevent the Comanche and the Kiowa from massing to charge his position. Anytime they would uh, begin to to mass together and head in the direction of Carson's force, they'd lob a, a shell or two at them, and that would break up those formations. So they weren't able to, to mount a concerted charge that, that could have overwhelmed the whole command. So there was a, a long firefight, and uh, the American volunteer force was able to to hold off this massive force of, of Kiowa and Comanche. And uh, some of the younger officers in, in the command wanted to press on after they'd, they'd beaten off this uh, Comanche-Kiowa attack. And they wanted to press on and hit other, other villages that they knew were, were further out there. But Carson's scouts advised strongly against it. These are his native scouts. And uh, Carson opted to retreat, which angered some of the the younger officers who considered it uh, an act of, of cowardice. Um, I think it's remarkable to note that Carson really paid attention to the counsel of his, his native scouts and disregarded the, the counsel of his more impetuous young officers. And... Uh, Events that would happen with just in, within just a few years on the northern plains amongst the, the Lakota Sioux would show how wise Carson had been. In 1866, a uh, young, aggressive Captain William Fetterman led his 80-man command into an ambush by Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho warriors in uh, near what's now Buffalo, Wyoming, and they were wiped out to a man. Most famously, George Armstrong Custer would lose his command at the Battle of the Little Bighorn under somewhat similar circumstances. Uh, He had left Gatling guns behind that might have played the role that that Carson's howitzers did, and uh, his men were, were... overrun and overwhelmed in probably the most famous battle on the plains. Carson unquestionably made the the right call and making a tactical withdrawal in the face of of a superior enemy force is a difficult maneuver and a dangerous one. He could easily have been uh, attacked en route and, and had his men 
been caught like that, it would have turned into a rout, and, and he could have, again, lost his entire command. So uh, he handled his, his troops skillfully. Um, he only lost a couple of men killed and a handful of wounded. The estimate of casualties amongst the Kiowa and the Comanche is, is really a guess. Um, Carson estimated 60 uh, killed and um, an unknown number of wounded. The, the body count is, is kind of irrelevant. Um, there's a couple of different ways of looking at, at this battle. Uh, Carlton was pleased with the result. Uh, he considered it a another feather in in Carson's cap, and consequently a feather in his cap as as well. Um, that's probably putting a, a little bit of a positive spin on it. Carson rather wryly admitted that he'd been whipped. Um, really, the, you'd have to say that that the results were inconclusive. The uh, Carson handled his command skillfully and didn't get them wiped out, which is a plus, and uh, and had very low casualties. Uh, the Indians retained possession of the field, which in traditional military parlance means they won the day. But uh, I think it 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 was probably a a rather startling development for the Comanche because there uh, it was very very rare that military forces were able to penetrate into the the plains where the Comanche and Kiowa felt themselves to be entirely secure if not invulnerable it would be another 10 years before American forces would would penetrate into that country again. And with the destruction of the buffalo and the Comanche horse herds, force them to come into reservations much in the same way that Carson had forced the Navajo in, uh, just by, by eliminating their ability to stay in the field. So with that, Kit Carson's career as a, a warrior and American soldier came to an end. And uh, his last years, frankly, are, are pretty sad, uh, shadowed by his deteriorating physical condition. He continued to pursue his duty, looking after the Mwachi Utes, uh, including a, a trip to Washington, D.C. to advocate upon their behalf uh, a trip that he should never have, have made under medical advice. And, and uh, he was, he was a, a dying man by the time he went to Washington. You can see it in the pictures. This, uh, his you know, kind of round face has become gaunt and his eyes are, are haunted. He was just very, very clearly a, a sick and dying man. Uh, tragically, his wife, Josefa, died after giving birth, uh, another case of childbed fever. And a month later, Carson died in the company of his doctor. The pulmonary aneurysm burst into his trachea, and uh, Carson cried out, Doctor, compadre, adios. And he died on May 23rd, 1868 in what has to be said to be a, a really sad and, and grim end to a very 
vivid and adventurous life. We'll do a roundup and assessment on Carson's legacy in the next episode, a supplemental episode of the Frontier Parsons podcast, and uh, talk a little bit about what it's been like for, for me really exploring the, the trail that Kit Carson left. I appreciate you riding along that trail with me. I want to especially thank Jack McGowan for sharing his experiences of Canyon de Chez with me, which brought that aspect of, of Carson's career to life in a, a very vivid fashion for me. And I'd also like to, uh, to thank Greg Walker for his long-term support of my work it's greatly appreciated. And if you enjoy this kind of history, stop on over at the campfire at frontierpartisans.com. Keep your eyes peeled for a Patreon page that will be up soon if you're interested in, in providing some ongoing support for the podcast. And uh, we'll see you a little bit down the trail.